You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. All right. We are still in Judges. A couple more, couple more weeks here. Uh, last week, I took my, uh, my youngest two, and we went and finally got to see, go, go see Captain Marvel. All right? Uh, we're looking for Endgame. We can't wait for Endgame. All right? I'm already getting tickets uh, for that in a couple weeks. All right? Some of you don't know what that means, and you just need to leave the church right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> but there's, it, there's something interesting happens when you go to a Marvel movie. So we're sitting there. The movie's over. Good movie, excited, whatever. And then people get up. And they start leaving, and I'm thinking, rookies, you are just, you don't even belong here. Because what everybody knows is kind of a fan of Marvel is they have mastered, in the last 11 years, the post-credit scene. Right? And it's, that's, it's not the, they're not the originators of it. Ferris Bueller did it. Remember back in the 80s, Ferris Bueller comes back at the end of that one, for those of you. The Muppet movie actually did it in 1979, um, for those of you who are even alive in the 70s and know what the Muppets are. Um, but th- this idea where no one really cares about the credits, let's be honest. You sit there for 20 minutes and there's a bunch of names that are so small you can't read them. Uh, but then there's that 27 second post credit scene. And that's, that's what you're waiting for, right? Um, but everything else you just ignore to get to that good stuff. The text we're going to look at today reminds me a little bit of those credits, right? This is the portion of scripture sometimes we're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Give me, give, give me the good stuff. Right? But actually, I think if we dig in just a little bit, we'll find that these are not just the credits. But there actually is some good stuff in, for, in here for us that's meant to encourage us. And so today we're going to talk about what can we learn from the credits? What can we learn from the credits? So we're going to be in Judges chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. And then actually we're going to jump up to chapter 12, verses 8 through 15. Um, next week, as we said, Beulah is coming to worship with us. They're going to help us lead with worship, and Pastor Lee's going to preach, uh, and some of our folks are going to sing with them. But, so we didn't want to, in, in the way the text reads, we didn't want to break Jephthah, who's the next judge, up. So, so kind of doing a little bit of 10 and a little bit of ch- chapter 12, they kind of bookend Jephthah, who is our next judge in the book, and, and Clint's going to cover him in two weeks. But these names that we're going to look at, it reads like credits, and they're often called the minor Judges. These are the minor judges. You got the major judges. And that doesn't mean that this, you know, the major judges are varsity and the, the minor judges are JV. Right? They're like lesser. Actually, some of these minor judges ruled longer than some of the major judges. The, the reason they're called minor judges versus major is the same reason we call the minor prophets versus the major. It's just the, the amount of material that covers them. So Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, they're called major prophets because they got longer books. And Obadiah, he's a minor prophet because he's got a little one-pager, right? Same with the judges. These guys are minor because they don't doesn't say much about them. doesn't say as much as Gideon and Deborah and, and Ehud and all these other guys, right? But it doesn't mean they're insignificant, right? Even though it does seem, just because it just mentions them, it's like, it's just the credits. But remember what we believe about, about Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's, it's the breath of God. It's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training so that we can be adequate. So for some reason, God added the credits for us so that you would be encouraged today. So what we're going to do is going to try to dig in and see if I can, by some miracle, uh, find that for us. And I'll look forward to our pastor evalu- sermon evaluation on Tuesday after this, uh, this sermon. So here's where we're picking up. For those who are visiting or new, we've been in this series on Judges. And, and Judges, there's a cycle of sin that keeps showing up. Here's my little cooker. All right. And so here it is. 
uh, the, the Israelites will rebel against God. They'll fall into idolatry and then God will bring a nation in to judge them and, and they'll stay in judgment for some significant amount of time, 10 years, 15 years, whatever. And finally, they'll cry out to God in sorrow and, and he will raise up a savior, a judge who will deliver them for a certain amount of time and as long as that judge is alive, they continue to follow him and then when that judge dies, they kind of start the cycle. And so we saw that with Gideon. Gideon, for the most part, he did some great things and was super courageous uh, but at the end of his life, he made some decisions that weren't wise, and that come back to bite the nation, because last week what we saw is his son, one of his 70 sons, killed the rest of his brothers and basically took over, and the nation made him their king. He was a false king. He was what we call a bramble king, right, because a bramble was a thorn bush that, that made all these promises of shade and help, but really a thorn bush does not do anything but, but hurt you. And that's exactly what happened to the nation last week we saw. And so and he destroyed cities and killed people. Until finally, a young lady with basically what amounts to a blender threw her blender out the window and killed him, right? Uh, she threw her, her kitchen utensil out and it hit him and he, and he died. And then what's left is a mess. You got a mess in Israel right now. You got cities that have been burned. You got families that have been destroyed. And that is where we pick up. That's where the credits start to roll in chapter 10. So let me just read the first five verses real quick and we'll come back and talk a little bit. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel... Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kemon. Super inspiring. You can add these to your memory verses this week, right? Okay. What do you learn from this besides, the only lesson I get off the surface is how to make sure your middle school son gets made fun of. Call him Dodo. <laughs> Good list of things not to call your children. But really what we see, you just have some facts about these guys. It reads like the credits. You got uh, Tola, he's got some funny names. He's got a granddaddy named Dodo. He's, a, he's from Issachar, it's a lesser known tribe. He lives in Ephraim. He lives 23 years and he dies. All right, exciting. You got Jair. All right, now he's got a bunch of kids, 30 sons. And each son on their 16th birthday gets himself not a new Honda, a new camel, right? They ride on 30 camels and, and they have 30 cities and their cities' names are the tents of Jair. That's what that, that tent city, basically. The villages of, tent villages of Jair. So he's a wealthy guy. He's got a bunch of kids. A donkey, by the way, was actually, it's, it's, we think, oh, a donkey. It was actually a symbol of royalty and a symbol of peace. So if, remember, Solomon comes in riding on a donkey. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey because it was a symbol of peace. The next time Jesus is riding an animal, he's riding a horse because the second time he comes is for war. The first time he came was for peace. So these are kingly people. They're kind of royal in some ways. But that's all we got about these guys, right? Uh, what do they do? We don't know. Significant milestones? We don't know. Author tells us nothing. In the next verse, though, after they die, they, the cycle starts again, right? People of Israel did what was evil in the sight. They served the Baals. This time they're serving everybody. They're serving gods of Moab, gods of Ammon, gods of Philistines. They forsook the Lord. And so what God does is he's going to raise up a judge that Clint's going to unpack for us in a few weeks named Jephthah. And he's kind of the, the judge that no one likes but everyone wants. He's the Jack Bauer judge, right? He's, he's, he's a mess of a man. But he's God's man for the time, and he comes and he judges for about only six years. So we're going to cover his entire life in two weeks, so you might want to read all that ahead because it's a lot of text. 
But then after that, after he dies, you pick up another group of, of credits. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters, all right? And they gave a bunch of his kids in marriage to different clans, and his 30 daughters he brought in from outside. So he's got a bunch of sons-in-law, a bunch of daughter-in-law. He judged seven years, and he died. Then you got the shortest one, Elon, the Zebulonite. He judged 10 years. Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. Exciting. And then there's Abdon, the son of Hillel, a Perathonite. He judged Israel. He had 40 sons, so he's outdoing everybody. 40 sons, 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. So he's the real donkey guy, right? He's got a big old garage of donkeys. And then he died, and he was buried, right? That's it. There's our text. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today. Exciting. <laughs> Remember, all scripture is inspired. Not as inspiring, but as inspired. And so what do we, what, why is this here, right? What, how does this help us to be adequate and equipped for every good work? How is this encouraging to the people of God living in Savannah, Georgia, 2019, right? Let me, let me give you four things to remind you about these credits, all right? Four things that kind of, if you kind of dig a little bit deeper, you just think about it. There's, there's things that stand out. Go back to 10, verse 1. After Abimelech, highlight that word. After Abimelech, there is a mess. It's a mess. People are scared. Who wants to be the next guy to step up in leadership there after the last guy killed people? It'd be like going into a business that's bankrupt or, or taking over a church that's just split. It's just a mess, and people are wounded and hurting. But notice it says, after Abimelech, what, that, that he sa- told us, saved Israel. You gotta ask the question, save from who? Every time a judge is raised up in the past, it's because the Moabites, the Midianites, the, the Eglon, the king of Moab, there's a, there's a foreign enemy that God is saving from. There's no enemy here externally. The enemy is who? Is them. They have made a mess. They chose their Abimelech. They followed after a king that God didn't want them to, right? It's, 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 a, it's a mess of their own doing, but this guy is going to save them. Here, here's another thing to notice about this. They don't cry out to God for help. Every other time something happens, God, they cry out to God, God saves them. They don't cry out here, but God saves them anyway, right? God, God rescues them anyway, and he raises up a judge, and I would argue he's a good judge, this guy told him. We don't know anything about him, but it's the same phrase that God uses of Deborah, who was one of the best judges Israel had, that, that Deborah arose, Tola arose. He judges for 23 years, and he's gotta be a good leader to help clean up that mess. But here's the point I want you to see. Here's a people who have made their own mess. Here's a people who are not even asking for God to save, and God saves them anyway, because that's just the type of God he is. The first lesson I learned from the credits in this passage is that our God is so gracious, that our God is so good, that he, even when we make a mess, he comes in, even when we're not asking for him, he does it anyway. John, the Gospel of John in the beginning where it talks about Jesus says that, that from, from his fullness, from Jesus's fullness, we have, I love this phrase, grace upon grace. It's like two graces. Grace is enough. But we don't just get grace, we get a double portion of grace. It's kind of like when I go to the Cracker Barrel. I always order the same thing. I get chicken and dumplings. And what do I get? A side of dumplings. Because I want double dumplings, right? Because I love chicken. It's a double portion. That's our, that is our God. It's a double portion of grace. This is who our God is. You don't have to ask always. He actually moves. He's not gonna continue to let the blasting of his people go on. 
He's the same God that after you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's the one there anointing your head with oil. He is the one who is filling your cup and, and giving you a seat in the place of your enemy. Sorry, he's not gonna let Abimelech's of the world have the last say because he is good. And he moves first, y'all. Our God is the God who moves first. Even when we wreck things, we're the ones who run away. We choose the brambles. He moves towards his people. When the coin is lost, he sweeps the house to find it. When the sheep wanders off, he goes after the one. When the sun leaves, he's the one who's watching and waiting and then runs to his son. He's just gracious. He does not give up on his people. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And we need to know that. Here's why. Because we do this. We constantly, we talked about this last week, we go after the brambles. And the tendency, we do one of two things when we as Christians go off and make a mess. Number one thing we, some of us have a tendency to do, we just kind of hide and just want to be miserable. And woe is me. I'm an Eeyore Christian. Well, yeah, I'm so bad. And we just, I'm so bad. I'm not worthy. And that's, that's half of Christianity. Because you made a mess. And you just sit there and you just want to feel bad about yourself. And oh, I'm such a bad person. Right? That's, that's one side of it. The other side, some of you, especially those who are more of the religious spin... So you, you've made a mess, but you think, okay, well, all, what I have to do this week now is I have to do extra quiet times. I have to uh, make sure I pray a little extra longer. I, I need to listen to Christian radio double, double amount, a couple extra podcasts. And once I've kind of built up my religious resume again, then I'll be worthy again, and then I can go move forward. And neither one of those gets grace. Grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor. You, cannot, you can't read enough Bible to make God favor you, nor can you sin great enough that God's favor does not cover that, right? And, and what I want you to be encouraged with, y'all, is that you have a bad week. Some of you had a good week. You're like, oh, I had a pretty good week. I'm pretty, I'm pretty good this week, right? Or some of you, oh, I had a horrible week. It doesn't matter. God's favor is towards his people. He, he is good, and you haven't earned it, even if you had a good week. The only reason you didn't sin this week, if you didn't, is because you were in a coma. And if you were in a coma, you wouldn't be here. And even in a coma, you probably sinned. Okay? But God's favor is towards his people. I mean, this is a book. Do you, I hope you're getting this now. This is a book where God continually, over and over and over and over and over and over again is saving his people when they do not deserve it. Isn't that us? You're like, no, I'm not that bad. Liar. <laughs> that is the graciousness of our God, that he moves towards his people. And it's given solely based on the goodness of the giver. And some of you are still beating yourself up over, over your college years or your failed marriage or your kids who are wandering and all these things. And was there sin there? Yes, probably. But you're letting the past brambles impact the future. And, and that you need to come back to grace. You don't need to hide and you don't need to earn yourself back in. You need to come back to grace. In Christ, here's what Colossians teaches us. I love this passage from Paul. That you were dead in your trespasses. That is true. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. 
God made you alive together with Christ. How did he do that? Having forgiven us, circle this word in your mind, all. All means all. All doesn't mean like, well, all minus that. He, he forgave all of your trespasses. That means past, that means today, that means future. How did he do it? He canceled the record of your debt that stood against you with its legal demands because there was a legal demand on your head. The wages of your sin was death. That was your debt. That was your mortgage you owed. He canceled it. How did he cancel it? He set it aside. How did he do that? He nailed it to someone else. Your debt was paid, all of it. And for you to sit there admiring in your own woe is me is to say Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. You tell him that. I'm not telling him. Right? So it's, it's almost a false pride. Right? You need to grasp the grace of God. And this is not an excuse, by the way, and Paul deals with this in Romans 6. You can read about it. It doesn't mean, oh, great, I'm under grace. I can do whatever I want. I can live my life the way I want. I can sin. That's not the point. The point is, because now I'm under grace, I live out this new identity, who I am. You know what the New Testament calls us, believe it or not? Saints. Holy ones. Right? How is that? Not because of me. In fact, you read through the letters of the New Testament, Paul says, to the church at Corinth. I mean, some of you, especially you, my religious kind of folks in this room, if you went to Corinth, you would leave and say, those aren't Christians. You would. You'd be like, they got a, they're a mess. You actually would like the Galatians probably because they look real good on the outside. But you know what the irony of that statement is? Every New Testament letter, every church, Corinth, Thessalonica, uh, Colossae, Ephesus, Philippi, Paul calls all of them saints at some point. You know the only church he never once calls saints? I, I studied this this week. I, shot, I never heard this before, so maybe I made a discovery. I don't know. The church in Galatia is never once called saints. And it's probably, in my understanding, because they thought they could earn God's favor. Their struggle was trying to add to the gospel, say that gospel was not enough. I need to do gospel plus. They're the only New Testament letter that doesn't have this idea of them being saints. Even Corinth. It's called saints. This is, this is who we are, right? You are a new creation. As far as the east is in the west, God has separated our sin from us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, right? Whom the son has set free is free indeed. All these passages that remind us of God's grace, forgetting what lies behind, all the brambles of your past, all the, the train wrecks of your past. What does Paul say? I press on towards the goal for the prize, you can do that because of grace. And these credits, yeah, it's subtle, but these great credits remind me that God is gracious. And now it's my responsibility and yours to live in a manner worthy of his grace, to live out my identity, to live as a saint. And when I fail, and I will, I come back to God's grace, right? I come back to his grace. That's the first thing that credits teach me. And that's enough, but I got a couple others, all right? Here's the number two. Something about, I actually watched a couple, I mean, just in preparation for this, I watched a couple credit scenes this week, just to look at some of the titles of what people do. So I found some interesting things like, you know, hairstylist, I'm like, okay, I, I get that. Uh, costume director, obviously. Some of you, you know, in film, and this is nothing new to you. For me, it's, it's very new. The boom operator, that sounds like an exciting job, all right? Boom operator, the director, senior video editor, director, cable person, sounds like a job I can handle that cable person. Uh, at least in those titles, you kind of know what those people do. Boom director, he holds the boom. Coffee guy, 
He goes and gets the coffee, whatever. The frustrating thing about these passages to me is I get nothing besides the fact that one of them had a really big garage full of donkeys and one of them had a really crazy Thanksgiving, right? I, I, I get nothing. I want more. This is, I, I, I even, you know, you try to search and you're, okay, what is the external things in the Bible? Josephus, does he say anything? You get nothing. It's kind of like, you ever get one of those Facebook friend requests and there's no picture? And you're like, who are you, dude? And you click on it, about, and there's nothing. Join Facebook, 1999 or whatever. That's all you get. And you're like, dude, why are you friending me? And you just like decline, you know, that's what, you know, that's what I do. I don't know about y'all. Y'all probably feel, you, you, some of you out there, I know you just ignore it and, and you think, oh, they won't know, right? I know how y'all are. There's like 1,300 friend requests. I just decline that bad boy. Um, but it's, it's nothing. You get nothing. You get giddy and you have something. You have Deborah, you have something. So here's that question. If you're going to say something, why do you say nothing? Why even tell us? Why mention their names? Why do I need to know about Tola, the son of so-and-so, the son of Dodo? Is it for a laugh? Is it for, that's the question, right? But here's the thing. In telling us nothing about Ibzan and Abdon, it actually does tell us a lot about Scripture, right? And and this is the lesson it teaches us. That scripture, in the end, is not about us. Scripture is about God. doesn't mean there's nothing for us. It doesn't mean it doesn't address us. But in the end, the center of what is going on in this book is not us. Right? The story of Gideon is not about how to be courageous or how to fight a battle. Right? Now, that's in there. But the story of Gideon ultimately is what? It's about God taking a weak dude and delivering his people through a weak dude. That's what the story's about. And so the second thing the credits teach me, just from this, even what it doesn't say, is that God is the star of this. That's the point. The story is, the universe is telling a story and there's one star. Three persons, one star. It's called the Trinity, starring the Trinity. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God. There's no co-stars, there's no supporting actors. It's about him. The story of scripture from the beginning to the end is about how God created, man ran away. God promises to redeem, God redeems, God finally redeems. That's the story. And there's a lot of little things in there, but ultimately that is the story. And we need to be careful that when we come to this, we don't make ourselves the heroes. Because that's what we do. We'll come to the story of, of David and Goliath. And this, this is how you slay your giants. Surely not. This is how God used a short man to slay the giants, right? That's the point. The story of Noah is not about Noah. Noah was good dude. This is how I've heard it preached. Be good like Noah. Noah was good. Noah built a boat. Noah was great. Be like Noah. The story of Noah is not about Noah. It's about how God saved Noah and his family. The story of Ruth is not about how to find a husband, Right? The story of Ruth is how God took a broken woman and completely restored and redeemed it right? and brought about the Messiah ultimately through her. Right? There's things for us, yes, and there's, there's wisdom and, and all these things. But ultimately, in the end, it's, it's about God. It's what Isaiah says, really, in, in chapter 40. I love this little passage at the end. He says, go on the mountain, Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities, behold your God. That's the point of the scripture. 
Behold your God. It's for us, but it's not about us. Right? And, and I could unpack, we could spend the whole time highlighting this. Let me just give you a few examples of this so that you're just going to see through the, through the narrative of the Bible. Psalm 23, famous passage. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He does all these things, right? God shepherds us. God loves us. God cares for us. He refreshes us. He restores us. He leads us. He does all these things. Sounds like we're pretty important. But why does he do it? For his name's sake. Isaiah 43 says that he formed you and he created you for his glory. So everything about you that, that is unique, your, your, how short you are, how bald you are, how bad your eyes are, how good your eyes are, whatever it is, your abilities, your, your speed, your intellect, your singing voice, how good you are with your hands, everything the way God designed you, Isaiah says, was for him. Everything. Matthew 5 we know this passage, let your light shine before men. Be good, be good. Why? That they may see your good works and do what? Glorify God. It's not about you being good, it's about God's glory. John 14, Jesus says, when you pray in my name, I give you anything. Why? So that God the Father is glorified. So God answers prayer, why? So that he receives the glory. First Peter four says you have spiritual gifts and you have abilities that you are to use, why? So that in the end, God is glorified. It's about him. Second Thessalonians, Jesus is coming back to be glorified in his saints. Philippians two, he's working for his will and his good pleasure. Revelation 21, everything, where this is all headed, that the glory of God will actually replace the sun. Like, this, this book is ultimately all about what he is and what he is doing. And the reason I want to tell you that is because some of you come to this book to check off a box, to make yourself feel good, or just to, to try to, I need to learn. And there's nothing wrong with learning. I'm all about learning. That's great. But the purpose of this is not to make you smarter. It's so that you would know him. Because it's about him. You were created to know and experience and savor your God. And this book is a way in which you can know who he is and know what he's about and know his heart. So when you were reading it, it's not just about, this is not a manual of how to have a good life. The apostles wrote it. Their life wasn't that great. They were all murdered. And they're poor. Right? So, so if this is how to have a good life, then do the exact opposite. But this is a book about how to know the God who loves you and created you and, and wants you to see and savor him. And it points you to him. So when you come to this, come to, to know him, not just to know about him, right? That's what, that's what this, these credits, in saying nothing, it says a ton about God's word. Reminds me that God is gracious. It reminds me that, that it's about him. Two more things real quick. Just because it doesn't say what they did doesn't mean they did nothing. There's a lot of life with 70 donkeys. There's a lot of life there. There's a lot of life with 30 grandkids. There's a lot of life with 30 boys and 30 girls. That's 30 prom dresses, right? That's 30 permits to drive, right? You can imagine the, the lot of life. There probably were battles. There probably was a ton of things that happened, Right? in their lives. Uh, and just because it doesn't mention it, just because we don't know what it was doesn't mean it didn't happen. And here, here's the, th the third thing. Just because we don't know 
anything about Tola. Ibzan, Dodo. Doesn't mean that God doesn't know. Third thing these remind me of is our God knows. Our God knows. We have a culture who values to be known, right? You get a certain amount of followers, you can make some money and be known. You accomplish something great, get your name in lights, that's where the value is, right? Nothing wrong with being famous, but here's the reality. Seven billion people in the world right now, right? Give or take. Conservative estimates, I kind of figured this out this week, Googling a lot. Apparently, there's been about 50 billion people who ever lived on the earth. Out of those 50 billion and the 7 billion that are alive today, very few of them are going to get their own Wikipedia page. You're probably not going to be one of them, right? Very few people in the big scheme of the 7 billion people are going to actually know who you are or what you've done. My uncle's been on this DNA kick lately, and he's, every week he's sending me like, did you know your great cousin, Uncle Charlie so-and-so, did all these things? I've never even heard of that guy. He's Tola to me. I don't even know. Do- yeah, he's, <laughs> he's, he was a pastor and blah, 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 and died in 1918. I'm like, That's only 100 years away. I don't know who that guy is. Right? The, the reality is there's a very small amount of people who are going to know you and know what you've done. Right? But here's the encouragement. But God knows you. In fact, Isaiah says that your name is ingrained on his hand. It's a big hand. Right? He knows exactly who you are. And whether you're at the bottom of the credits of human history, I mean, you're the boom mic assistant. Or maybe you're towards the top. Maybe you're pretty well known, Billy Graham. When Jesus tells his disciples, his disciples come back in Luke 10 and they say, Jesus, man, you should see the things we can do. We're casting out demons. Their demons are listening. We're doing, people are talking about us. We're, are, we're getting kind of famous. We're getting kind of important. People know who we are. We have authority. We're in charge. Jesus says, don't rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you. Here's where we rejoice. The same thing we rejoice in. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's for us. Your name is written, who wrote it? God. And more permanent ink than Wikipedia that can be changed every other day and edited in the blood of Christ. He said, that's what you rejoice. Maybe no one ever, maybe you never get your face on Christianity today, right? You don't, no one knows what you even do. I have first cousins, they're first cousins. I don't even know where they work. I can't remember the name of their kids sometimes. I don't know what they do, but God knows. And maybe your week is filled with the trivial things, the the trivial things like filling up a sippy cup, cleaning out a sippy cup, cutting crust off bread. And you feel like no one knows and no one cares. God knows. The smallest deed, giving a cup of water. Jesus, you give a cup of water in my name to these little ones, you will not lose your reward. In the Greek text there, it's a double negative. It's like this, it makes it actually stronger. He said, there's no way. A cup of water, just the smallest little thing in my name, the smallest little thing that no one notices, no one will ever see, you will be rewarded for that. I see it. The shortest little prayer for someone reaches his ears. The most insignificant little thing to everybody else, he 
sees. Two pennies given in his name is worth far more than billions without love, 1 Corinthians 13. See, that's God's economy, right? The blue-collar guy barely making and getting by at $12 an hour has just as much significance in God's eyes as Billy Graham preaching to billions, right? There is no boring, there is no insignificant, there is no less value in Jesus' eyes. This should be, y'all, this should be hugely freeing for us. You can, that means you can do whatever you're called to do wherever, from Alaska to Kalamazoo, from Moscow to Tybee, whatever you do. And here, here's, the, here's the verse, that you, the go-to verse, right? Uh, this, this is a freeing verse. Whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, it doesn't tell you what to do, it says what? Whatever. You wanna be a football coach? Be a football coach. You, want, you don't have to be, you don't have to work at a church, you don't have to do this. It doesn't say what you have to do, it says whatever you do, journalist, nurse, Stay-at-home mom, engineer, professional athlete, waiter, waitress, whatever. Whatever it is, the what is not defined, but the how is. Do it in the name of Jesus. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says the same thing. It says, when you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. If you think about this, you can have a good cup of coffee to the glory of God, and that is awesome. We celebrate the glory of God in coffee at this church, you know that. You can watch a great film. You can go for a jog. You can take a spiritually glorifying God nap on a Sunday afternoon. Amen. You can watch some March Madness to the glory of God. Whatever you do. And then just, as long as you're giving thanks and you're doing it for his glory. You know, that should be hugely freeing for you. There's not some box you have to fit in. This is what it looks like to be this. No, are you glorifying God? Are you, are, that's, he, and, and you do, he knows. He gives value to that. When you do this for him, it, he gives you value. It gives value. There is no sacred. There's no secular. There's a separation. Right? It's all sacred when it's done for him. There's value there. We're all priests. There's a parable Jesus tells, uh, on, on, and it's the parable of the talents. And a talent is actually not like a, I'm good at baseball or I'm fast. A talent is a, a, a numerical value. It's a... It's a money. And I love this parable because it emphasizes the reality that life is not fair because the master gives five talents to this one, he gives two talents to this one, and he gives one talent to that one. You say, that's not fair. It's his money. He can do what he wants. But what is, what's awesome about the parable is one guy gets five, one guy gets two, one guy gets one, is his response to each one. The one with five goes off and he makes five more. And, and, and the master says, well done. And the one with two Goes off and he makes two more. You know what response he gets? He doesn't get, well, you didn't make as much as him. He gets the same response. Well done. The only one who gets rebuked is the one who did nothing. He hides it in the ground. See, God is the one who issues out what you get and where your influence is and, and whether you're, you're gonna be at the top of the credits or at the bottom of the credits. That's his deal. What your job is and my job is just to be faithful. As you wake up tomorrow morning, not Sunday morning, because everyone's faithful Sunday morning, at least once they walk through those doors they are. Before then, they're mad and yelling at the kids. But tomorrow morning when you wake up, God, I just want to be faithful to you today. I want to enjoy you. I want to savor you. I want to walk in your grace. I want to present myself as an instrument of righteousness. I want you to use me. I want you to use me to encourage people. I just want to be faithful. And maybe it's with three little ones. And maybe you're a school teacher and you're like, it's almost summer, baby. And maybe you're an engineer and you're like, okay, the project's over. Whatever. 
that you're just being faithful where God has you. And he sees. He sees. Whatever you do, big or small, he sees. That's what this text reminds me of. So our God sees, our God is gracious, our God is a star. And there's one other thing, and it's something we're gonna be celebrating in just a few weeks. You know what all these guys have in common besides the fact that they're judges and they're Jewish? It says it every time. Tola died. Jair died. Isban died. Elon died. Abdon died. They all died. They, they weren't enough to save the people long term, right? And this is why we entitled this series, Everyone Needs a King. Because we need someone who's better than Gideon and better than Deborah and better than King David and better than Solomon and better than Daniel. And, and it's just a reminder. Remember, the Old Testament is pointing forward. The, the Pharisees read the Bible and pray and do all these things. And Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think you find life in them. He said, these things speak of me. The whole Old Testament is just pointing to Jesus. And, and, and we need a better judge, we need a better king, and we got one. And he is the one who conquered the issue that Tola had, he died, that Jair had died. And he conquered the issue that we have, that we would die. So 1 Timothy says that he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through his gospel, through the good news. Here's what Hebrews says. He says, oh, here's the last point, I'm sorry, I skipped it. Our God lives. But here's what Hebrews says. He is able to save to the uttermost. This is Jesus, those who draw near. Why? Because he's always alive. He makes intercession. And this text reminds me that we have a savior who lives and no matter what happens in this life, he is alive. And whatever struggle you have, he has won. And he, he, he's not just here to save you from your circumstances. The verse says he saves us to the uttermost. He saves you as much as you can be saved. That's why we gather on Sundays. That's why the church is here around the world. Costa Rica, Moscow, we're celebrating that Jesus is alive. And we're gonna celebrate it in a few weeks. Easter for us is a party, it is a celebration. That's why we encourage you to invite folks because we want them to know that our God is alive. It seems like just the credits, but I think there's some great encouragements. Our God is gracious, our God is alive. Our God is a star, and our God knows, right? Just from a little verses, just from a little bit. Let's, let's stand and let's worship. Let's worship him who has, his, has engraved us on his hands and worship him who is alive. Father, I pray that as we kind of get ready for the Easter season, uh, that we would just continue to remember things like this, that you are alive. I thank you that you see, that you know, that nothing escapes your notice, that you are gracious towards us towards me because I so need it. I just pray that we would be refreshed in your goodness today, just reminded in who you are. Your word is about you. It points us back to you and in you we have hope. And so I'm thankful that we can gather together and encourage each other in hope. It's in Christ's name I pray.